0: You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. All right. Let's jump into uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Last week, we did Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at really the beginning, the the pilot episode of this series, uh, season 1. Uh, creation. And it's all good, right? It all begins with Tove. It's good. And then we're going to see in Genesis 3, the plot to take shape and form. So let's look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And <laughs> that's such a I I, I gotta go. I gotta keep reading, right? We'll preach on that in a moment. Uh, (laughs) It's hard for preachers. We're like, ah, I just gotta read it and then get to it. Okay, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 'You you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her and he ate. And when the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the lord from the, of the lord god among the trees in the garden but the lord called to man and said to him where are you <laughs> and he said I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, as we all still do today, we blame the woman. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, well, as we all do today, we blame someone else. Uh, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts, and on the belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then this is the key verse. We'll be uh, kind of hinging off here in the middle of the sermon in verse 15. And I will put enmity. That word is uh, maybe not used very often today. It's a word of like hostility. I will put uh, something between, right? This uh, hostility, opposition. I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, or her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Different ways of translating that, but this concept of bruising and crushing a head and crushing a heel, there's very differences there. So we'll, we'll take a break, stop right there. And actually, no, I'll skip down, if you would, just for time's sake, skip down to verse 20. Verse 20 says, and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is covering for their sin. Verse 22, and the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and flaming sword and turned every way to guard the tree of life. So here we have in Genesis 3, the very well-known passage to the fall, this this. Pivotal moment in the story. Yes, right off the bat, the beginning of Genesis. It is right off the bat. We we have this beginning, the creation. It is good, and then bam, the plot twist. And I think it's important for us to think in regards as we're talking often, Emma, through the series of the big, grand story, the long story. We 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 think. In terms of stories, I think even humanity—we, I've even preached on this in the past—of of using fairy tales, the, the story of fairy tales. That even as children, we love stories. Fairy tales often help us uh, understand who the. Uh, how the world works, uh, the the prince uh, slaying the dragon, and, and we resonate with those stories, and in today, those fairy tales are put into movie form, and, all, and we watch movies that resonate with us, because, because that is really, I think, in some ways, it resonates with who we are, the real story of the world, our existence, and our need for a savior, it resonates with us. And the other day, I uh, actually, I think it was in my office this week, I was like, uh, talking, and then I think somebody popped in, and we were talking about uh, Little Red Riding Hood. And it was just funny because it's like when you pop into a, a pastor's office, you don't always expect the topic of conversation. So, what do you think about Little Red Riding Hood? You know, it's just kind of a, an odd, funny thing. But I was, I was describing, I was like, you know, I think I might open up with Little Red Riding Hood. And they were like, no, no, don't do that. That's not a good idea. But I'm going to do it. So, Little Red Riding Hood is a helpful narrative for me in my strange brain, the way it works. Um, but J. Richard Middleton, a writer, also does this. as he, he uses Little Red Riding Hood to get our minds to think about this big, grand-sweeping story of the Bible. And he says the story begins in, in this way of Little Red Riding Hood that she is sent, she's sent by her mother to deliver a basket of goodies to her grandmother. Basic plot, right? Or basic uh, mission here. And and this is an excellent illustration of the beginning where there is a sender, There's there's a mother who sends the agent of Riding Hood with a task of goodies to the receiver, the grandmother, right? The story begins with a mission and a task, and yet there's no plot. It's just get this to there. That's not a plot. That's not a story. That's not something that's going to keep you captivated. That's not something that has any need because there's nothing to oppose what's happening. And so the story begins with a mission and there's no plot. The plot proper begins with an introduction of the complication, the impediment, uh, which prevents the initial narrative sequence from being completed. So who enters the storyline? Enter the big bad wolf, right? And so the big bad wolf, this comes into the storyline. And we could say that's kind of like Genesis 3. The initial agent, Riding Hood, now helps needs help as she encounters the Big Bad Wolf, and so in the traditional story of Little Red Riding Hood, there's a helper that comes, the woodsman, you know that? The woodsman comes in and his task is to bring aid to the riding hood by removing the impediment, the Big Bad Wolf. So in our story, the woodsman comes to the aid of Little Red Riding Hood by killing the Big Bad Wolf who swallowed the grandmother. And the removal of the impediment is not yet the end of the story though as we have a a problem, there is sin, there's a fall, and then there is a need for a resolution and there is a solving of that problem with Jesus on the cross, but the story doesn't end at the cross. It doesn't end even at the resurrection. There is still much to be said. The story reaches its fullness or fruition in the narrative, resolution occurs in that little fairy tale, when finally Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother and the woodsman have a little picnic together. They, the, the final, the, the reason of coming is now finally resolved and we see this basic, simple, childlike storyline work itself out in the entire story of the Bible. Adam and Eve and humanity have been given a task, a calling to the garden to work and to work it and to walk in a relationship with God and work as a viceroy almost uh, with um, dominion over the earth to be multi- to multiply and be fruitful. This is a line, this is a purpose and a mission but, but there's no conflict until Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the big bad wolf, the snake you could say, the serpent, the Satan as it says, The evil, the opposing aspect of the storyline, the fall happens and sin comes into the world. And then enter the storyline of a need for a woodsman to come and rescue Little Red Riding Hood, you and me. (laughs) because we cannot do it on our own and so in this original story the woodsman comes in and you have this aspect of of that person coming and taking control and delivering victory and conquering death and the sin and as genesis 3:15 says crushing the head of the snake we need a snake crusher <laughs> And Jesus is that one, that woodsman that comes to destroy the snake and comes to release. And yet, it's not over. We need finally one day. As we are all moving in that trajectory to one day ha- sit down and have a picnic, to sit down at the banquet table, to sit down in heaven. As heaven, there is a new earth and a new heaven. It is remade, and this kingdom of God this is is being uh, is being furthered. And one day the Lord will return and there will be the senses. I think it's in the Old Testament, the, the lion and the lamb, uh, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the, the child will play over the adder's den and there will be peace. This is our longing. And so last week we said that the story of the Bible is ultimately the story of God redeeming humanity back to himself using Israel as the vehicle to deliver Jesus, to restore the kingdom of God through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, before we skip to the end of the story, we we must examine the hardest chapter in the Bible, the toughest chapter in the Bible. It's challenging because it resonates with every single one of us. It's a story of you and me, the fall. And so in chapter three, it is good. It's all good. And uh, and sorry, in chapter one and two, it's all good. And then in chapter two, verse 16 and 17, it says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And God gave one prohibition, one command in verse 17 of chapter two, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We don't know if it's an apple. I don't know. Some people say it's a banana or a pomegranate. The fruit isn't important. It's the sense of that this tree is the tree that you do not touch. You can have all the other ones. It's almost kind of like one of those phrases that people will say kind of jokingly, like, you had one job. Have you ever said that, you know? Literally, you had one job. Just don't touch the tree, right? You just had one job. You couldn't do your one job. And so it's one of those things with this two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just don't touch that tree. And yet why in the storyline, I don't think I even have time to really get into all of this today, but it's just, it naturally comes up in our heart, why in the world would God even do this, right? Like, Like we even, like I know my kids, All right, children, you may have all of the toys in this room, but don't touch that toy, you know? Nobody touches that one, every other toy. What are those toddlers gonna want to touch? That toy, right? And we know that from ours, so we're kind of like, God, I knew that was gonna happen kind of a thing, right? Don't don't you, in your heart and your mind, be like, doesn't God know that this was going to happen? Why would he set us up to fall? Why would God do this? And there are many theological deep answers into this and this is not really the series in which we do all of that. But I think in some sense, there is a basic understanding of God's creating humanity in his image, with his likeness. And in his wisdom, he has established the order of creation and he has given humanity a choice. He has made you and me with a will, a free will to choose to obey God or not. Free will thats allows for freedom of choice, of freedom of autonomy, that God in some way has Himself, that He creates within hum- humanity with, in His image, Imago Dei. He didn't create robots to just fall in line. He created humans with the ability to rule, to have dominion, to make choices, and to create and to fashion things with our hands, just like God creates. Yet they were not God they were the created. Their full understanding was not complete. They did not have omniscience of understanding of all that is good and evil. And so when we took of the fruit and we eat of it, it's not as if the fruit had some sort of poison or like Snow White's little poison apple. You know, it's that aspect, but it's not so much about the fruit, it's about the act of disobedience. It's the act of rebellion against God's holy order. It's about enthroning ourselves and de-godding God. This is the act of what it means. What does that hot stove feel like if you've never burned your hand? You have a question in your heart and in your mind that you want to touch it. I want to feel what it feels like. But I was told not to touch that hot burning stove. <laughs> but I just, I just want to know and yet God says don't touch the stove. It's better that you don't touch it. I trust me, trust me. Trust me, how many times have you said that as parents, just trust me, don't touch it, it's better that you don't know. And yet we touch the stuff <laughs> and we're burned and we feel the consequences of our scalding, blistering hand and, then, and yet in this way there's, a, there's some consequences that come, there's a fall, there's a fall out, there was a relationship that was there, it was full of trust, now that trust has been broken as I sought to define what is right, what is wrong. I now define good and evil on my own terms. I think it's better that I touch the stove than rather you tell me that I don't. This is at the core of the thinking and the understanding here. Another way of even looking at this is the tree and the temptation that Eve faces. Chris Bruno, I'll be quoting him throughout the series. He writes some fascinating books that help with these topics. He says, As he adds to this part of this covenant relationship between God and human beings, he says God asked them to trust him and obey him. He asked them to believe and that he told them that was best for them. In another illustration, he says, just like you and I tell your kids to wear a helmet and watch out for cars or slow down when they're riding their bikes, they often respond with the opposite, testing our advice. Doubting our rules and our advice, they act as if they have a better knowledge than those in authority over them. And so in this relationship, God is saying, here I am, we are in together with harmony. Trust me and obey, I am your creator. And yet, here are the terms of our relationship. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to obey? And then the temptation is presented and we're left with a choice. And the temptation, we look at that in Genesis 3, the temptation that it begins so subtly, what is it, and, and these, this, I, I challenged myself this week because there's a whole sermon just in these couple of verses that I have to keep moving on from a, as a pastor, right? But there is so much there in this very question, did God actually say? And no doubt you've heard sermons on this verse. For the very first thing that the serpent does, the very first thing was question the very words of God. You will find that over and over is a pattern from humanity, uh, from the beginning that spills out into humanity to question the very words of God, to twist the words of God. Can you really believe that he said that? Like, do you, do you think he really, did he really say you can't eat of that tree? I mean, let's think about this for a second. Let's just work it out, you know? Let's talk about this, you know? Like, no big deal, nothing. You know, did God he really say that? Did, 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 did he really mean that? Does, like, it's just, and he's just putting seeds of doubt, questions in your heart, suggesting certain things, maybe not how overtly demanding certain things, but allowing you to question them. Just suggest that maybe, what would happen if you ate it? Let's just think about it. What would happen if you ate of that tree? The devil always uses half-truths and deceptions. Very rarely does he come overtly and out front with obvious wrong. It is often half-truth. Tastes good, but it's poison within. And so he's questioning God that maybe God doesn't really know what's best for you. Maybe he doesn't have your best interest in mind. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you should start looking out for yourself. And the devil will always do this, always today. The same pattern exists for you and today as we try to stand in righteousness and we walk in the spirit to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. As we do that, we're gonna see the same kinds of conversations that you and I have almost every single day. And Josh Prather actually spoke in the men's breakfast yesterday and he talked about this idea of, of the, uh, what was it, the it's only sins. Well, it's, it's only a fruit, Yeah, you know? it's only a tree. Jesus in the wilderness being tempted in the New Testament. It's only bread. Like, it's just a stone. It's only, just turn it into bread. Like, it's, it's only, it's only, it's only. You're gonna hear that over and over. And Eve then adds to the statements of question that she has. She adds to God's statements as well. So not only will you constantly have people who twist God's word, but add to the God's words as well. For what is something that she adds She adds by saying that the serpent, you know, that God said this. Yes, he did, but he also said that we can't even touch it. (laughs) Notice she adds that. Yeah, that God, man, he has lots of rules, and he didn't even let us touch it. (laughs) He didn't say that. Nowhere in Genesis 2 do we find that. Nowhere do we see that. And yet she has added on to what God has said. And then not only that, she then begins to question and what she should have said is all these other things. There are so many things that what she should have said, what you should have done, or as I can hear, there was a comedian who did uh, this whole thing of when his mama would come to him and, and it, he would be getting into mischief and, and she would say, what you what you not gonna do right what you're not going to do son is this and this and that right and it's what that's what she should have done to the serpent whoa whoa, whoa! what you're not going to do is tell me to question God no 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 I'm not going there I'm not touching this and leave but she entertains it she allows herself to think about it and she should have demanded that this guy: are you out of your mind serpent are you crazy I'm not going to question God do you not know who he is he created everything he created you he created me How could I question his love for me when I am made as an image bearer of him to display his love? He knows in a way that I can never know what's best for me. I trust him absolutely. And you want me to question God? Who do you think you are? That is idiotic. What good could possibly come from me questioning the sovereign? I mean, that's what I would like to read in Genesis 3, right? But we find very, very different things. And then Carson, D.A. Carson writes in this and he says the first thing that is contradicted in God uh, and it's so often in what God says and in his word, the first thing that is overtly contradicted is the question of judgment. Notice in verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That is an overt statement of absolute lie, right? Right? It is overt, it is outward. Other things were half-truth kind of and then maybe did God question, hey, maybe, hey, you won't die. God doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not gonna kill you. You shall not surely die. And the first doctrine we find often, even today in today's world, the first doctrine to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. You're not gonna be punished. If you can remove the doctrine of judgment or consequence to anything we do, then we're free to do whatever we want. There's no punishment, there's no, there's no hell, there's no judgment, there's no sin, just free and do and be. That's often the first thing to be plucked out from God's word, get past any threat. Plus, you know, God's holding out on you. He's holding the good stuff from you, you know? God's just a, a cosmic killjoy anyways. He doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's keeping something from you. Genesis 3.5, and we know what happens when, when, when happens next. God knows that when you eat of it, it says. This, this whole big thing here that He uses then to, to hook them on, finally. There's the, the enticement, the confusion, the questioning coming into the hook with the meaty, juicy worm on it. And, and then there's the hook. That God knows that when you eat of it, He's holding from you, you will be like God, knowing good. And evil, and is is that true? In fact, it is true. So that's what's so enticing about it. There's truth in this statement. Because in fact, God himself says this in Genesis 3.22. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So maybe it was God holding out on him, right? The central point of enticement here, they, they take the bite, they take the bait you would. It's partly true, their eyes would be opened. They would be be like God, yet God is omnipotent. God is omniscient, all powerful, all knowing, and you and I are not. So you can't just know about evil from a distance as a created being, like God. You will know evil by experience, by becoming evil yourself. I read an illustration in this way of of, of Adam and Eve becoming like God, not God, but trying to put themselves in that way that they, they did not know evil by knowing about evil. They knew evil by becoming evil. God was not like that. They used the illustration of, of cancer. You have a cancer, someone who has cancer, knows cancer internally by what it feels like and what it does to their body and the feeling of knowing Cancer internally and then the doctors and the oncologists who have never had cancer but know about cancer and know it externally this illustration is not perfect by any means but it helps us just grasp an understanding of God's knowledge complete knowledge of good and evil yet without being evil himself we are not capable of this and we take of evil and learn of evil by becoming it by taking of it and it pronounces judgment upon us. And now all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we see that in this way, we then begin to define good and evil on our own terms. We begin to say this is right, this is wrong. We then are now like God in that we sit in a seat of judgment. We now have to define all that is right and wrong on our own terms, on our ways, in our uh, limited knowledge. We become little judges, little gods ourselves and yet completely incapable of knowing what is right and wrong without infinite wisdom. So God himself tells us that they have become like us We are now the arbiters of truth, the right and wrong and just take 10 minutes and watch the news and see how stressful and exhausting this is today in our culture of what is right, of what is wrong, of what is good and what is evil and the questions and the twisting and the confusion and the the sin that infects all of those things that we become ourselves enthroned. (laughs) We place ourselves on these puppet thrones. I am now creator. I am definer of right and wrong. I am order maker. I am God. In in, in a sense, we were originally meant to be and rule with God, but now we have separated ourselves out of relationship, and we must do it all on our own, in our own way. As I said earlier, Carson says that this is the de-godding of God. We attempt to de-god him. Now, we don't, but we enthrone ourselves in tempting to worship this idolatry, putting something else or someone else in front of God, in this case, ourselves. And so it is in this simple phrase, in this simple beginning, this simple taking and eating that the entire cosmic order is shattered and there is chaotic disarray and sin and death enter the world. And yet it is in this striking simple phrase that she took And she ate and gave to her husband who was right there the whole time, I get that. Adam is right there and doesn't say a word and goes along with every single thing of it. They're both just as guilty. She took and ate of the fruit and yet it is in that simple statement that the world is thrown into death and yet it is in that simple statement we see a beautiful New Testament foreshadowing that we do every month. It is in that we take and we eat of the new Adam. There's a sense of Jesus that comes into this world who tells us, as we, Val said it earlier, I am the bread. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus then says, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. We take, we partake, we eat together in righteousness. Jesus as our substitute, his atonement, his cleansing power of his blood over our sin. We now take and eat of him, and it is in his righteousness that we stand. We are made whole, righteous, clean before God because of him. And now we participate in communion and relationship with God again. It's this physical reminder of our spiritual reality and state. 1 Corinthians 15, says that in, in all, right? For, for everyone, this is true of that for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, if you need some encouragement these days, go and read that chapter. This is our God, a God of love who doesn't utterly destroy rebels. You shall surely die. Death would enter, but they did not surely die that day. He was gracious, he was merciful. In Genesis 3, he clothes them and what does he clothe them by? Skins of an animal, he slays an animal, blood is shed, our sins are covered. Do you see it from the very beginning, Genesis chapter three and the entire Old Testament sacrificial system leading up into Jesus Christ is enacted right there that we need a covering for our sin. We are shameful and full of of shame and yet God slays the animals, covers our sin with the blood And yet that would not be enough. It would be a foreshadowing for the one who would eventually come, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So our consequences, the sin comes, and yet we see that in this fall, in this sin, this is where we encounter the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. Would you guys look with me at Genesis 3.15 and as we run through uh, the last couple of stories that kind of highlight all the fallout of sin, But we see in Genesis 3.15 that this amazing first gospel, theologians would call it the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first foreshadowing of the Messiah. From the very beginning we see and we hear about a one who would come from the woman who would be the snake crusher. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is one who will come to crush the head of the snake and the heel of that one will be struck, but it would not be fatal. There would be this enmity, there will be this time of of hostility between the two offsprings, between the two rivaling families, between the two lines that come, the, the line of the snake and the line of Adam and Eve the seed of the one who would come. And there will be this time of separating, bringing into a blessing of a certain people and a blessing and and a cursing of another. The serpent will then try from the very beginning, from, will try to put uh, opposition, will try to destroy that seed from the very beginning. The plan, the battle plan that God has enacted, that snake will try to continually destroy the seed and often it'll look like the snake has won and yet God is victorious every single time. We see from the very beginning, the next chapter in Genesis chapter four, what happens? The offspring, the offspring of the woman, Cain and Abel, Abel, his sacrifice is accepted before God. He is chosen and blessed. And we see Cain in a jealous fit of rage commit murder and spill the blood of the chosen seed of God. He murders his brother, he kills him, and blood is shed. And Cain is not the one that we see crushing the head of the snake. In fact, he's the one crushing the head of his brother instead. This is the fallout of sin. Nay, Abel doesn't kill the snake and so maybe we're left with it can't be Cain who the one is gonna come and save us and it can't be Abel so who is it going to be? Maybe the snake has been reigned victorious and sin will infect everyone and rather it says no, no, no. Adam and Eve have another child and you know what his name is? His name is Seth. And from the blessed line of Seth we get a person whose name is Noah. And as Cain's line, as the line of the snake starts to infect the world and sin runs rampant in Genesis chapter four and five, it says in fact that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There was evil and yet Noah stands out among the rest. There is one who is separated out from the line, Seth and Noah, Noah walked with God And God uses Noah to continue his promise to the world to deliver one who would save the world. Is it Cain? No. Is it Abel? No. But it's Seth? No. Is it Noah? Noah, as he is selected to provide salvation, the fallout of sin has gone viral all over the earth. And we see Noah as God sends a flood, be this one who represents the salvation of humanity. That represents salvation to the world. Noah is the one who, who then also we find is not the one. For even after his salvation is provided, the new earth is presented. There's sin, there's drunkenness, there's nakedness, there's sin even from his sons. And we find out it hasn't been figured out. And from that line, from a son of Noah, we see the Tower of Babel begin to be built. Where they begin to build something not to glorify God But to again do the exact thing that happened in Genesis 3 To glorify themselves It says let us build a tower For in that time there was one people with one language And it says let us build a tower To make a name for ourselves Build a tower to heaven So that we can become like God And we don't need him And we see Jesus in the New Testament saying, I am the ladder, I am the way, Jacob's ladder. I am the one who that ladder ascends and descends. The Tower of Babel will never make us, allow us to go to heaven. We need God So God confused their languages. He has scattered the people and spread them across the earth and there will be a pattern of enmity between that grouping of trying to usurp God and his authority and God choosing and selecting some that he would bless and bring salvation for the world. And you're gonna see that throughout the scripture, a separation for blessing. He separates Abel, he separates Seth, He separates Noah, and then soon in Genesis 12, he will separate Abraham out and create a vehicle, the people of Israel, the chosen nation of God, which will eventually deliver the very one that he has separated out from the rest, the one, the only one who could save humanity, the perfect, spotless lamb of God. This is the story of the Bible. God's still tracing his line of blessing to save the world. The strand is not broken, though the seed of the snake would try to destroy that line over and over. We follow that line all the way to the cross. And that is when the final uh, nail is put into Jesus. The snake feels as if he is victorious. The the demons are crying out. Sin is, is saying, we have won. We have slain the one." And yet it is in that that we find the tables are turned. The kingdom is upside down. The very thing that was given to save is dead, but it is in that death that we find salvation. (laughs) It is in that resurrection that we find Jesus Christ being victorious it is in the very blood of Jesus that is spilled all of the bible comes to find its focus and need for Jesus for Romans 3:23 says just exactly what Genesis 3 says for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God we're all in the same boat it equalizes every single one of us including you and including me and yet it goes on in that passage to say in Romans 3:23 and 24 it says that we have been justified through the blood of Jesus. It is in that justification that we are made right, what was broken. It is in that redemption that we are bought back from the slave market of sin. It is in that propitiation that we find that God's wrath is absorbed in Jesus. It is in through walking and following and believing in Jesus as our Savior and in the blood that washes our sins that we find what we're looking for. The need that humanity cannot resolve on its own. The woodsman that comes to kill the big bad wolf. The thing that we cannot do on our own. It is that that blood of Jesus speaks a better word. I'm gonna close with this chapter or this verse. In Hebrews 12:24. I've been praying and talking with others about how to close this massive message. There's massive things that are going on with the flood and the, and the Tower of Babel and Cain and Abel and and the fall in Genesis three, how is it that we close uh, bringing it to Jesus? I stumbled upon this passage this week and someone else brought it up again this week and I came to Hebrews 12 verse 24. And I really think God wants us to be here as well because the worship team has offered to sing uh, the the final song today. Uh, We're gonna be singing Thank You Jesus for the Blood. I want us to consider the aspect of blood today maybe not something you talk about very often but in church we find very comfortable with it but the aspect of blood is the lifeblood and yet that lifeblood can be taken and it can be spilled and it can bring death we find in Genesis 3 there is death there is sin and in Hebrews 12:24 we find that there is a beautiful mediator of a new covenant what does it say? Hebrews 12, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There's a new way, a new promise, a new life, a new creation. Jesus is the mediator, the one between that connects what's broken and makes it whole again. It is the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat from the sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of Israel in the Old Testament, The sprinkled blood of those animals that were slain to make skins, to to cover the sins of Adam and Eve. The sprinkled blood, which then what? The sprinkled blood of Jesus, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We read in the Old Testament in Genesis 4 that the blood of Abel is personified with a voice. It says in Genesis 4 that God said, what have you done to Cain? What have you done? the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's almost as if all of humanity is reliving the account of the fall in Cain and Abel again and as this blood is shed, there is a blood of an innocent person being shed, being murdered, being killed. His blood is spilt into the ground and saturates into the soil and cries out for vengeance It cries out for condemnation upon mankind. The blood cries out for justice. It cries out for for wholeness. It cries out for sin. Sin that murders and takes the life of someone else. The thing that has been on repeat from the beginning of time until now. The voice of Abel's blood cries out, but it was not a voice that could save It was a voice in need of a savior. It was in need of a spotless, pure lamb, a lamb of God. And so the blood is personified. A voice is contrasted with that of Abel. The blood cried from the ground with vengeance upon its murderer that this is not right. This is not good. And the voice of Christ's blood calls out from the cross, but not with condemnation, but with mercy and forgiveness. That we have murdered, we have killed, we, it is our sin that puts him on the cross, but instead of condemnation, those who are in Christ have received no condemnation, but we have received grace and forgiveness because the Holy Lamb of God has been slain, and his blood covers your sin. And it is because of his grace, something we did not deserve that we freely receive when our faith is placed in him. When you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. This is the word of God. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, justified by his blood, much more now we will be saved. The blood of Jesus comes not to condemn the world, but to save the world. It is, as God's word says, a precious blood of Christ. It is precious. And it speaks a better word, a much better word than anything else could ever do, not of condemnation, but of redemption, of joy, of goodness and happiness, and of salvation. We're gonna sing these words in a moment, and I hope you can sing them with me. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, for you have washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, for you have saved my life. You have brought me from darkness into your glorious light. Is that what the blood of Jesus speaks to you today? Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you. We recognize our sin and our need for a savior. And yet, Lord, at the same breath, we recognize your atoning blood for mankind it is grace it is love it is all that we are here for today your blood speaks a better word it speaks a better word into our lives today a word of salvation a word of grace a word of mercy a word of love a word of acceptance when we don't deserve acceptance a word of adoption when we deserve banishment, of restoration. God, you speak these things into our lives and we accept them, we walk in them, we are filled with them, knowing that we are nothing apart from them. But in Christ, we find salvation. In Christ, we find relationship and life and a restoration of mission and purpose to go out and be your hands and be your feet anyone who needs this message, to needs to hear that they are whole in Christ. God, I pray that you would speak to us today and preach your word of love and grace into our hearts as we so desperately are in need of the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.